Good morning. Hey, it's great to be with you guys again. If you want to follow along with the message this morning, Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 6, I want to remind you of something you probably already know, but sometimes it's important to be reminded of what we know. Uh, We know that God is here. Amen? Right? When you gather as a corporate body of believers, Jesus Christ is here. Through the power of his Holy Spirit, Scripture is pretty clear about that. So when we pause and pray in gatherings like this, it's not really very much to ask him to be here. Prayer is kind of serving a different purpose in corporate gatherings. He's already here. Prayer in the corporate body is asking that we'd be aware of that. It's asking that our eyes would be opened to his presence. So as you're going to Mark chapter 6, here in a second, I'm going to have us pray. And I just want to take that angle on this prayer. We're not asking right now for Jesus to be here. He is here. Let's ask that we would be here free of distraction, free of deception, free of discouragement, whatever. That we just be able to focus on the word. Okay, so right now, go ahead, bow your heads, close your eyes with me for a second. Take a moment of two, just on your own time, your own words, and just kind of silently just invite the Lord to make you aware of his presence today. Jesus, your presence is with us. Jesus, your resurrected person is in the room, and we ask Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see him. Father, we know you've given us this lens, this this glass through which we can look to see your son, and it's your word. So Father, as we look to the word, Spirit, open our eyes that we might see Jesus. God, I pray that today you just mark us, that this would be a stake in the ground moment, God. God, a moment we look back to and say, man, that morning God spoke to me. We ask it in Jesus' name for the sake of his church. Amen. Start in verse 1, guys. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at a lack of faith. I'm going to read that a second time, okay? That'll be our third time hearing it this morning. Let's go back to verse 1. I want you to enter this passage with me. This is Mark 6, starting in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his own relatives in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. 
First line in this passage says, Jesus left there. You rewind back one chapter in Mark 5. Jesus is dealing out incredible miracles, okay? These are powerful. This is the passage, Mark 5, on the woman with the issue of blood. So she touches the hem of his garment unknowingly. Jesus is not even trying to heal her in this moment. Unknowingly heals her, right? Crazy. Uh, Same passage, the synagogue leader's daughter is dead. She's not dying, y'all. She's dead. And Jesus raises her. So, like, if you were reading through Mark sequentially, and you read chapter 5, as a reader, you'd come into Mark 6 going, dang, what's next? Dang, what's next? Where is Jesus about to go? And like your hopes are starting to get excited, right? Because you hit verse 2, and it says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach, and many who heard him were amazed. And that Greek word for amazed is usually used when people see Jesus teaching something with authority. So you're thinking, man, this is about to be good. And then you hit these questions, and all of a sudden, the author Mark puts the pause button, guys, on this expectation. You're like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Because the people of Nazareth, his hometown, they're not responding like they should. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given him? What's these remarkable miracles he's performing? On and on and on. Your expectation comes to this screeching halt, and Jesus is not pleased with them. And in the midst of his response... There's this really brief verse. It's why we read it three times. I wanted you to catch this verse. This really brief verse says, he was amazed at their lack of faith. There are two times in the Bible this Greek word, a different Greek word than before, is used to say that Jesus was amazed. Jesus is only amazed two times in the Bible. Do you know by what? Right here at someone's lack of faith and in another passage at someone's great faith. Does that not tell you something about Jesus? What has the ability to provoke the eternal son of God to to amazement? Faith. The presence of it or the lack of it. So in this passage we're saying, man, this is saying something about faith to us, guys. We have a question of faith to wrestle with this morning. But even if you rewind back to Mark 5 in the story I told you about with the woman at the issue of blood, after her healing, Jesus says this, daughter, your faith has healed you. So Mark is threading faith almost like this theme all through this passage. I went to school here in Indiana Wesleyan, did my undergrad here, my graduate work here, and when I went to school here, I was a student body chaplain. Um, so what Ben and Becky do for you up here, yeah, I did that. So I got to speak in chapel occasionally, plan to breathe, discipled hall chaplains, all that stuff. And when I was a junior, I worked with a hall chaplain here at your school who was a senior. At that time, he was a uh, chaplain of Bowman House, okay? Rest in peace, Bowman House. He was a chaplain there. And literally, he and I would work together all the time. Uh, we both were called to ministry, both studied in the School of Theology and Ministry here. Um, we both graduated. I became a travel speaker. He went to a mega church, got hired as a resident pastor for their youth program. Then he was hired as their high school senior ministries pastor. Then he gets hired as their student ministries director. Okay, he's being groomed for a really, really nice position in a really big church. He's a really, really successful dude. A couple months ago, he asked me to come in, do an event for him. I come in, we, we do a four-day event. We're at this church, God's moving. We get to night four, we finish the service. My friend and I, who both went here, are sitting on the stage after the four-day event at his church after the service. I look at him and I ask him, hey man, what has God spoken to you in the last four days? He said, Garrett, I think what I've learned is that I think I've lost my desperation for God. There's a problem with that. 
Okay, did you catch the part that we both went to the school? We both studied ministry. We're both from STM. We're both uh, called to this. We've spoken all over. How can you be doing church and leading church that much and yet have lost your desperation for God? Well, that's how the story goes, right? The more familiar you sometimes get with God, it makes you forget how much you need him. Y'all, that's Nazareth. That's the people of Jesus' hometown. They've forgotten. And hear me quickly. It's not that their lack of faith means they don't think Jesus can do big things. They already saw him teach and they're amazed. Their lack of faith is not a lack of belief that Jesus can do miracles. It's a lack of realization they need him to do miracles. It's they lack this desperation. Guys, sometimes the more familiar you get with God, it makes you forget you need a big God. Danger sign, warning sign to those of you in ministry. Be careful. Don't let that strip you of that. Don't be stripped of this sense of need. Let me take a different angle on it. Here come the signs. That says poor. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word poor. Uh, For some of you, maybe, I bet for all of us, we have different images connected with this word poor. Uh, Some of you maybe get the picture of somebody who's begging for food, right? Maybe you think of a downtown scene, somebody needs food, they have a sign, hey, help me, whatever. Maybe you think of a foreclosure sign. Don't know what you think of when you think of this word. If we went around the room, though... And we all shouted out, hey, what do you think of when you think of this word poor? I bet you could find a thread going through all those pictures uh, that has to do with need. Okay, there's this idea that whatever this word means has something to do with being in need. Take that concept now, aim it spiritual. What does it mean when scripture uses the phrase poor in spirit? Poor in spirit. It connotes that same thread. It is someone who embraces their needs. So around this sign, I would put the woman with the issue of blood. It's not like if Jesus doesn't come through, she's got 12 other options. She's been trying her 12 other options. This is year 12. If he doesn't work, she's dead. She knows her need. She would be poor in spirit. Same with the man whose daughter died in the synagogue, right? He's poor in spirit. These are characters who embrace their need. Well, if you set up this stage as a spectrum, there's something else on the opposite of that. But the opposite word is not what you would think it is. Whatever this is, it's going to be somebody who does not recognize their need. It's somebody who places Jesus at an arm's distance. And I would call that when some of you see this word, what you think is maybe conceit. Outward pride. Like like, like a a sports figure or a politician who's like all about themselves. Pride, spiritually aimed, is much more subtle, much harder to detect. Pride is the attitude that says, I don't need God. 
This is where the people of Nazareth are, right? And this is why they have a lack of faith. Faith is not so much lack in belief that God has power in this passage. It's more of a lack that you own your need. And in America, we have this picture that one day you will be successful if you grow up, have a good job, can pay your bills, can do whatever you want. That's called the American dream, right? The problem is the American dream, in essence, is a life where you don't have need. The dream of most Americans is to shield yourself of need. But if you shield yourself from need, you strip yourself of faith. And the American church has been hijacked by that American dream. And so here's how we often run church. When you build churches out of a spirit and a baptism of pride that says we don't need God, you start doing church that way. So you start proving to people we can do church without God. That's called performance. And when you perform for people, guess what? It makes the people of God passive. Because all you've ever done is walked into church and saw somebody on stage who's dang good at it and they can do it. But guess what? You never learned how to do the kingdom. You're passive. My Bible says at the end of this passage, he could not, I don't know what that phrase means, but I'm not going there this morning. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. You know what the fruit of this is? Whenever you buy into the baptism of pride, you get the same results of the people of Nazareth. Your harvest is a lack of the miraculous. You do realize that most third world, world countries right now are exploding in the miraculous. We're living in one of the greatest ages of Pentecost there has ever been. You know why? They know their need. Y'all, they know their need, and we're sitting on the sidelines in the West because we've been stripped of our need because of our spirit of pride, and that causes two things, a lack of the miraculous, and hear this one. Pride is offended when the power of God tries to be displayed. The people of Nazareth were offended. Are you serious? The Son of God is at their door, and he's come to move, and they're offended. Some of them have been praying for this, and he shows up, and they're like, what are you doing here? This is us, guys. How many times have we apologized or been offended when the power of God's come knocking? And guess what? God's power comes knocking. You say no, he will move on eventually. He'll find a city that wants it. He'll find somewhere that will take it. God forgive us for saying no when he knocks. So I have a good friend named Tim, and uh, one, one year Tim was leading his uh, youth group on a mission trip. It's a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. And so Tim uh, flies over to the Dominican with his students, and going into this trip, Tim feels a real disconnect from God. Okay, he does not feel close to God. So on the flight from the U.S. to the Dominican, my friend Tim is praying, and he's like, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I can't lead these students. I'm not in a position to do this. I feel disconnected from you. God, I need you. He's just praying about his need. And on this flight, he has his tray table down on this plane. He's got his journal out, and he starts to journal. And for some reason, as he's praying, God, I need you, my friend Tim starts to draw. He's just kind of like visually journaling. Some of you have probably done that before. He's drawing, and he starts drawing this really specific picture. And Tim doesn't really know why this specific picture is coming to him, but he's drawing a picture, and it's a picture of a man who's welding something. 
Okay, it's a picture of a man bent over. He's got two pieces of metal. He's welding them together. Sparks are flying, and this man has a, like, like a welding mask over his face. Really specific picture. Tim's just drawing. He's like, whatever. Closes his journal, ends his prayer time. They arrive in the Dominican. A couple days into their trip, they're going on this evangelistic uh, trip, right? They're going to do spirit-led evangelism. They split into groups of three as a mission group. They spread out throughout the city, and they take time to pray for who they're supposed to witness to. So Tim's group is praying, and he hears the Holy Spirit tell him, Tim, look for the man. He's like, God, what man are you talking about? Like, like, who are you talking about? And God's like, the man I had you draw in your journal. And so Tim's like, hey, guys, I don't know if this is worth anything, but look to see if somebody's welding anything. Like, when we go, just see if somebody's welding something. So they're walking throughout the street, and they're walking on this trip, and one of his team members says, hey, Tim, I think this guy's welding something. And I don't know if you've had this, like, moment. I'm going to pause the story for a second, step out of it. When I have those moments, and somebody's like, hey, God's doing something, there's usually a yes and an oh, crap. (laughs) Oh, no, dang it, I'm going to have to do something. So Tim's having the oh, crap moment. And so they walk over, and this guy looks exactly like his picture. Two pieces of metal, sparks are flying, visor down. And so Tim's like, here we go. He just starts talking to this guy, says, hey, man, like, I don't know who you are. The, The guy shares a little bit of his story. They invite this guy to show up that night at their outreach event. This man comes. This man comes back the next night. This man ends up giving his life to Christ. Comes to the Lord. And I look at that, you guys, and some of us are like, man, that's so cool. Like, that's so cool. I want that. How do I get there? Well, if you go back to the start of that story, the way that started wasn't with Tim journaling. It wasn't with a mission trip. It was with him saying, I need you, God. It was him professing his need. And I want to say this. I've talked a lot about the problem here of pride, but gospel, guys, is not just a problem. A secular person can tell you the problem. The gospel is promise. The gospel is what does God have to say about our problem? Well, in one of the greatest sermons ever preached in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus could have started it so many ways. What is the first line out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? For all the lack of miracles over here, and for all the offense at God's power, for all the problem there, there is something over here called the kingdom of heaven that is readily available and always there for those who are poor in spirit. And the kingdom is marked by miracles, by signs, by wonders, by prophecy, by words being shared, by encouragement, by people coming to Christ. Can you imagine if that was normal? If that was not unusual, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guys, most of y'all are, are as college students, you're looking ahead, you're saying, what do I want to do with my life? What path do I want to choose? What career do I want? Can I just tell you something? I don't know what your career should be. I don't know who you should marry. I don't know where you should move. I don't know the answer of any of those big life decisions. You know what I do know? If you love God, you want to be here. You want to be somewhere where the kingdom is moving. Because where the kingdom is coming, man, there is joy. There is excitement. I want to be there. Whatever job you have, wherever you end up moving, say, God, make me poor in spirit. God, make me somebody that wants to know you, that acknowledges my need. If I could choose one thing right now, one characteristic that God could grant on my life, it would be this, to be poor in spirit. 
So do me a favor for a second. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Just pause for a second, right in the middle of the sermon, pause for a second, and just ask the Spirit in your own words, ask him to teach you how to be poor in spirit, if that's your word. Just, just ask him that for a second of silence. Jesus' name, amen. There's three ways I wrote for this morning to go from here to here. Pride to poverty. I, I nailed it down to two. I pulled it down to one. I'm going to give you one way. One single way. So listen up. This is not going to take long. I'm only giving you one way this morning. You can go from here to here. Last summer, I took a sabbatical, and during that sabbatical, I went to Lexington, Kentucky. Went to visit two of my best friends there. These friends hosted a prayer time in their apartment of about 15 young adults. So me, 15 young adults from Lexington, were crammed into this tiny little room. It'd be like if you invited 20 friends into your room in Hodson or something, right? You probably do that all the time. It's like smelly, it's hot, it's intense, and we're praying for like three hours. So we're praying, 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 and there comes this point in this smelly, hot prayer meeting where somebody starts to pray for the persecuted church. And when they pray for the persecuted church, it, guys, I'm just telling you this. If you've ever been in a prayer meeting and you can just sense like a wind from heaven or like a rushing, like, dang, we have to go there. Everybody in the room was like, yes. So we went into this season of praying for the persecuted church. And we're praying for Mozambique and all these countries by name. People are just being prompted to lift out countries. We're praying for Africa, praying for Asia, all over. Until my friend Austin stands up and says, God Forgive us for praying for the persecuted church as if we have something they don't. God, hear this. He prayed this prayer, guys. It marked me for my life. He said, God, give us their yoke. I'm going to take you in inside that prayer for a second. We're going to unpack that prayer, okay? A yoke. You go back to farming days, you had to plow the ground, right, so seed could go in the ground. To plow the ground, a plow has to be pushed by a human or more likely pulled by an animal. So you've got an ox or a donkey or a whatever, and it's got to pull this plow. Well, sometimes the plow was too heavy for one animal to pull alone. What do you do? You get two. Two donkeys, two oxen, two cows. But to make sure one oxen is not way ahead of the other one and one's behind or that one's going left and one's going right, they put them together. What did they invent? A yoke. This thing that went over two animals to make them step together. If you want to go from here to here, you must step into a yoking with the Holy Spirit. That is called prayer. Prayer is yoking yourself to the Holy Spirit. You're under one part of the yoke, the Spirit's under the other part. Prayer is yoking yourself to the Spirit, guys. It's yoking yourself to the Spirit because when you yoke yourself to the Spirit, the yoke is not flexible. You can't run out front and the Spirit's suddenly behind. You can't be behind and the Spirit's ahead. Prayer forces you to be in step with the Spirit. If your prayer life is current, it is impossible to be out of step with the Spirit. If you're praying and obeying, you will be in step. 
you will be in step. And 10 times out of 10, when you yoke yourself with the Spirit through a lifestyle of prayer, what happens? He slows down your pace. And as he slows down your pace, a revelation comes to you that you desperately need God. Not for crisis, not for emergencies, not for problems, for every stinking breath. I was like six years old, maybe seven. And I don't remember where this memory happened. But I'm like six or seven, maybe eight, probably in second, third grade. And my dad was driving me somewhere, and I don't even remember where this happened. So I don't remember where he was driving me, I don't remember where we were going. But dad's driving me somewhere, and in the road we see somebody stopped. Their car's broken down, they're just kind of in trouble. So dad pulls over to the side of the road. And he says, Garrett, we're going to go help this person. So we get out of the car. You've probably done this before. You've seen somebody do it before. We get behind their vehicle because their vehicle can't go. The person who owns the car is on the steering wheel, right? We're pushing it together. And I'm pushing hard. All six years of, my, of me is just pushing. I'm just, oh, like I'm pushing, right? I'm pushing. And I'm like sweating. And it's like getting hard. And like we're pushing, pushing, pushing. We get their car there. It's like, praise God, we help them. We go back. Now I look back on that memory and I'm positive. I could not have been contributing much power. Okay, just really unlikely, like little Garrett, like Garrett today wouldn't be contributing that much power either, but little Garrett really wouldn't have been contributing power. So like dad's doing all the work. Dad didn't invite me to push the car because he needed my power. He invited me to push the car to teach me something. Some of you, when I say the phrase, yoke yourself to the spirit, you don't like that because you think that sounds like slavery. Uh, that sounds heavy, Garrett. That sounds hard. Is it hard? Uh, yeah, at times. At times. But let me say this. God's not wanting to yoke with you because he needs your power. He's got enough of that. He's yoking to you to teach you a different pace. To teach you to slow down. And if the yoke of the kingdom is prayer, the pace of the kingdom is submission. Guys, when you yoke yourself to the Spirit by praying, and I'm not just talking about like offering a quick prayer, but like a lifestyle of prayer. Some of you have prayed before, but you've never taken on a yoke of prayer. You've never taken on a mantle of prayer. A yoke of prayer, what that will do to you, it will slow you down so much because the Spirit will prompt you so many times throughout the day to stop. He'll say, stop. You're like, God, we're not pushing this plow fast enough. And he's like, stop. Are you pushing or am I? And you stop. And can I just say something? Some of you really desperately want to know how to be in step with the Spirit or how to hear the voice of God. This is how you do it. Because when you cultivate for years being yoked with the Spirit and taking a left when he says left and a right when he says right, when you've cultivated that for years, you know immediately when you step out of the yoke. It's so obvious. It's like, wow, why do I have to give all the power all of a sudden? It's because you're pulling a direction the Spirit's not pulling. That's called discernment. You begin to recognize, wait a minute, something's wrong here. You're never going to cultivate that unless you take on the yoke of prayer. There's three things I could give you. I'm only giving you that one, though, prayer. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Not prayer briefly, not prayer whatever. Prayer is a lifestyle. Taking on a yoke of prayer, slowing down, and when you slow down and take on that yoke, what happens is you begin to realize, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, this pride I've lived in my whole life is wrong, and I desperately, desperately need the power of God. And I go on and come back out. 
I was here for undergrad, here for my graduate work. I worked here, did my graduate assistantship here, and then I've worked here as an employee. And I just want to close by saying this. I'm going to close by saying this, and I really want you to hear this, okay? So listen up. We have had moments of revival on this campus. We have had moments where the Spirit of God has showed up and done incredible things. We've had summits, we've had fusions, we've had chapel services where God just poured out. You've been to Coram Dale, you've been to the well, you've been to Awaken, you've been to whatever, and God has moved. But I believe this campus will never have more than a moment of revival more than a momentary outpouring unless we step into poor of spirit. It'll always be a good event. It'll always be, wow, God moved. And look, will that keep happening? Yes, because even Nazareth got a couple miracles. Even they got something, but God has something more. Do you want to settle for the couple miracles he could do at Nazareth or do you want to walk in the fullness? If we want that fullness, it's going to require being poor of spirit and stand up with me. Stand up and bow your heads. Holy Spirit, God, we're sorry for all the times that we've said we don't need you. And God, even if we've never said that out loud, we've said it by our schedule. We've said it by the way we go into our day without praying. We've said it by how we don't care for the poor. So God, I pray in Jesus' name, if there's one young woman or one young man today in this congregation that wants to take on your yoke, I pray, Holy Spirit, remind them of the words of Jesus, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Just take a second before we dismiss and use this space to talk to the Lord. As always, you're welcome to remain. If you'd like to pray, speak with somebody, whatever, go in the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're sent out.